Exclusive Books Homebrew is a celebration of the diversity that is local writing, covering fresh perspectives on history, sharing never-told-before personal stories, challenging established views, and excavating the trough of political policy. Exclusive Books Homebrew. Not the same old story. Today's episode of Homebrew is presented by advocacy journalist and poet Lerato Sibanda. A long letter to my daughter is Marita van Pfeiffer's coming-of-age memoir. She wrote it in France while in isolation. Its style is very easygoing. It's written in the form of a tête-à-tête, speaking to her daughter, also back to herself. She begins to paint character portraits of her Africana ancestors and the many strange circumstances which were foisted on her while growing up in apartheid. It's a confessional of how she overcomes her shyness and of her discovery of the world through words and travel. It also plays homage to the myriad of authors whose work has inspired her and kept her feeling forever 17, she says. Welcome to Homebrew. Marita, please read us an extract from your book. Thank you, Lerato. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I'll read something from a page right from the beginning. It's always easier for readers. When I describe myself as a woman who's had three children by three men, I sound like a slutty loser from a storybook. When I add that each of these men came from a different cultural background, each with a different passport, I wonder whether that makes me sound wild and daring, a fearless, liberated kind of woman like Madame de Stahl, who had five children by four men without ever ceasing to write or be a thorn in the flesh of bombastic men. In my younger days, long before I read this formidable French-Swiss woman's biography, I heard something she was believed to have said. To understand everything is to forgive everything. These seemed like magnificent words to live by, and I immediately wanted to know more about a woman who could utter such wisdom. I later established that this remark was attributed to Madame de Stahl, but that the exact words are not to be found anywhere in her extensive works. What she did, however, write in one of her novels, Corinne, is this. To understand everything makes one very tolerant, and to feel deeply inspires great kindness, which is still an inspiring worldview, don't you think? My admiration for Madame de Stahl's political and personal daring notwithstanding, I've always viewed myself as a bit scared and timid. I certainly never planned to have such a multilingual and multicultural love life when I was young. Life simply happened to me while I was dreaming of other things, to twist John Lennon's famous phrase a little. But I did dream from an early age, and perhaps all courage and daring spring from the very impossibilities we dream about. Some of my youthful dreams were so far-fetched that I couldn't even share them with my friends or my family. For example, I dreamt that one day I would write books that would win literature prizes and make readers see the world in new ways. 
this was not a sort of thing that a shy child from a middle-class Afrikaans family that had been a working-class family barely a generation earlier could ever say out loud without feeling ridiculous. There were no writers or artists in our family, or even among our family friends. There was no higher education. I was the eldest child and eldest grandchild, and the first on either Ma or Pa's side to go to university directly after school. Bravo. That is amazing. Thank you so much for that. You wrote this book for your daughter, Mia. Has she read it? And what were her thoughts? She has, actually. Um, I was very nervous at first because I thought, oh, everybody's now going to ask her about it and maybe she doesn't want to read it now because I actually <laughs> You have, to, you have to read it one day when I'm dead <laughs> because we all wish when our mothers are not there anymore, you know, you think of all the things that you wanted to. So that was actually in the back of my head. But she was curious, of course. So she apparently liked it because she didn't say, you know, I suppose if she hated it, she wouldn't have told me. <laughs> I heard her telling one of her friends the other day that she feels incredibly lucky, actually, because of this because she knows that so many women, when they get older, I suppose men too, we wish, we think of all the things that our parents could have left us, could have told us when they're not there anymore. That is so true. And I think maybe the book made her realize that, because I didn't realize that when I was a teenager. As I say in the book, I never listened to what my grandparents told me. I wasn't interested in their stories about the old days. I thought it was boring. And then I died. And you realize when I started writing this book, I, I know nothing. I know nothing about my grandparents. Even my mother has been dead for 20 years. So then it's much more difficult to start when you're old enough to start being interested in your own background. It's usually too late. You originally wrote the book in Afrikaans and had it translated. Did the English translation manage to capture all the idioms and metaphors in the original? It was a difficult translation, I'm sure, because it is also about language. I write a lot about my love for my mother tongue, which is Afrikaans, yes. in spite of its bad history um, of the language of the present. That's the language I feel is the language of my stomach, of my heart that I want to write in. Yes. But the irony is that my daughter is French with a French yes. father, and she doesn't read Afrikaans. So I knew while I was writing it, that it had to be translated. But I was very fortunate. The translator, Annalise Fisser, did an excellent job. I think a lot of reviews I've seen specifically mention the translation too. And I think it was made possible because she's translated quite a few of my other books. I think this is the sixth book that we work together on. So if you work that closely with a translator, there's a kind of a feeling that develops. It's almost like she knows what I want to say before I say it, or while I'm still struggling to say it, you know, that kind of thing. So I certainly felt very happy with the translation. Let's talk a little bit about your love for your mother tongue, your reclaiming of Afrikaans and your your work as a kind of missionary for the language? It's something that grew on me because in the book, I write about how I didn't want to be Afrikaans at all in my school years. If you remember that part about being a teenager, you know, Afrikaners were called rock riders. And it was just 
there was just nothing. I looked at my English speaking friends and they had movies and books and in their language and all the rock music, which I as a teenager wanted to listen to was in English. So there were many, many reasons. And I think I'm comparing to those Mills and Boone's story books that we read, those very romantic story books. You know, there's always like a guy that the heroine has to get to, but she has to <laughs> get seduced by all the wrong guys. And for me, yes. it was like Afrikaans was that guy that was waiting for me, you know, the solid, dependable one. But English and French, oh, ooh la la, you know, fell in love with French when I was in high school, started taking French. And all the time there was this, my background, my Afrikaans background, which I only managed to reclaim, I think, once I started after 76, after Soweto, after, you know, the Soweto uprising, after I really kind of my eyes opened about what's happening in this country and how, why I could understand why, why lots of people didn't want to be taught in Afrikaans. I can understand all that. And still, now that I live in France, I think I feel more Afrikaans and more South African than ever before because I'm far away from my roots and it makes me be aware of it at the same time. So I yes. feel what I do when I when I say missionary work is I go to schools. I'm also a youth, a young adult writer. So I write youth books and I go to schools and I really try and get the kids. I do spoken word poetry workshops and trying to reclaim. Oh, amazing. You know, in Cups, Cups is also a variety of Afrikaans, a dialect, and also in the Makoland Afrikaans is different from Transvaal Afrikaans. So I just try and get yes. to write um, with slang, with whatever they can put in swear words. They don't have to worry about the grammar. And it's wonderful, wonderful, the stuff that we came up. You know, we went from the Cape Flats into the West Coast, the Makoland, and I seen beautiful stuff. Oh, that's amazing, Marita. You have written several books to great success, and yet in this one, you mention and quote several authors. Why was it so important to honor other writers in telling your story? I think the most important reason is probably because most of us, we become writers because we are readers first and we admire other writers. And they pass on something to us, something I felt that writers that I have admired through the years, right from my childhood days, helped me, helped me to live, taught me about life. And in a way, when you start writing yourself, you feel that you also, you hope that you could also do that. It's like a, you know, like a relay race where somebody gives and that yeah. sticks to you and you want to pass it on to the next generation. So I think it's that. And, I, and specifically as a female writer, as a woman writer, you know, we forget now that the whole world is full of women writers, how hard it was for the first woman to start writing and it, how recently, actually it's only the past hundred years that women could really write and call themselves writers. So I feel I also have to honor the first woman in the English speaking language, for instance, who called herself a writer, more or less in Shakespeare's time was Afra Ben. I specifically mention her. I tell about her story, what an extraordinary woman she was, way, way ahead of her time. Um, And yes, so that's just a way of saying, okay, I couldn't do this if it weren't for other women before me who said, okay, we want to write. We don't want to just scribble letters. We want to call ourselves writers. Oh, amazing. You talked to Mia about issues that you would never dream of talking about when you were her age. 
what did it take for you to express and confess all that you did? I think it's just the fact that since she was born, I've been much more open than my parents ever were with me. And at the same time, I have to say, you know, in the book, my mother was a nurse. So she was probably more open than many other mothers about biological things, about sexuality, about things happening to your body. She was quite open about that. But it was still, my mother, I think, was a suppressed feminist. She would rebel against my dad, kind of behind his back by joking a little bit or you couldn't really take up your own space. It was very hard for her you know, um, in that generation. Now I want my daughter to take up space, to walk. Yes. She has a partner to walk beside the partner and not behind him. I grew up with girls always walk a little behind the boy, you know. Girls keep quiet when mm-hmm. men, men talk. All these things, I just wanted my daughter not to have these burden. So I think I raised her from a young age, of course, helped by the fact that I have a French partner who's very open-minded about these things. And I live in a country in France, which is also, I think, more open-minded about sexuality. And, you know, in school, they talk to the children about sex. There are lots of things that's not nearly as wonderful in France as people think. I think there's a lot of politics that get swept under the table, like in all countries. But at least when it comes to, to things like talking about religion, philosophy, sexuality, I felt free here. In the Afrikaans community, you are loved and celebrated for your contribution to Afrikaans literature. And yet in this memoir, you touch on very sensitive issues such as segregation and also female conservatism. Was it nerve-wracking at all to broach those subjects and did you receive any backlash? You know, the nice thing about being a writer as opposed to being, say, a television personality is we live much more protected. Our readers read us and usually they would let us know if if they love our work. Sometimes, once, for instance, I was on television for something completely different and then I had people making horrible remarks. It was for a cooking series I did with my husband. One of my books was also a cookbook. And then people would just make anonymous, horrible remarks about your appearance, about who does she think she is, you know, is she too good for South Mm. Africa? You know, things like that. And these kind of things can really hurt because you think, but what did I do? With readers, no. You do get it in newspapers, you know, in the comments section on internet when you have an interview. But I've long since stopped reading the comments after interviews because they are always, and usually anonymous, and they usually spell very badly. And they go, (laughs) how wonderful, you know, about the African language that has to be saved and they don't even have the respect for the language to spell. <laughs> so I've stopped worrying about them. I know that they are definitely uh, white Afrikaners who probably don't like me at all. It's okay. I can live with that. I found my tribe. I have the, the Afrikaans speaking people I know and I love and the people who read my books, they're okay. They're my tribe. In the process of writing, you visited your childhood house using Google Maps. Which other places have you visited with Google Maps recently and what were you hoping to find? 
Oh, that's an interesting question. You mean not not necessarily <laughs> having anything to do with a book, just generally? Just yes, I can tell you that exactly because last weekend I was in Berlin um, to take part in the African Book Festival, which was postponed like for two years by COVID. Finally got there, and I googled before because my previous time in Berlin was like thirty years ago. It was so long ago. It was just after the wall came down and I thought it felt like a first visit. So I had to Google. I had to Google, you know, a few places. That was the last one. <laughs> Apart from that, I do um, use Google Earth and so when I write, but nothing can ever replace being there physically. I mm-hmm. need in a place physically before I can write about it. I can't write about a country that I've never been to. We have a question from one of our Facebook followers. Since you've spent most of your career writing fiction, what has been most thrilling and most nerve-wracking about writing non-fiction? That's a good question because it is actually, in a certain way, it's less difficult and in, a, in another way, it's more nerve-wracking. The less difficult thing comes because I don't have to use my imagination. It's there. It's not a story I have to you know, get out of my uh, somewhere from nothing. The story is already there. I just have to decide what to tell and what not to tell. That was the less difficult part. The nerve-wracking part is that I'm dealing with the truth. And I'm saying it quote unquote because I keep on saying it's my truth. There isn't something like objective truth. It's always subjective. When I tell my story through my eyes, it's how I remember it. And it might be different from how my sister or my cousin or another school friend remembers it. So that I had to keep in mind all the time and to be aware that the people you write about are still alive, are still living. And I don't have the right to tell their stories. So that was a big challenge. Telling my story without encroaching on the stories of those around me. At the same time, you can't, you're not an island. I can't pretend that I grew up all alone, that there weren't parents, brothers, sisters, school friends. So that was difficult. That was a tightrope walk I had to do day by day. And you did quite a fantastic job at it. Thank you. You know, there are writers, I suppose, who don't mind hurting people because they think what you write is more important than, you know, the life you live or whatever. And I can't be like that. The people I love are very important to me. And I would never feel, okay, I can hurt this person. It's just, it's a book, it's literature, it's more important than living beings. No, 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 for me, not. A long letter to my daughter is a celebration of the spaces, places, and faces that Marita has traversed, a celebration of the cosmopolitan family she's been blessed with, and a celebration of being a proud South African. Thank you so much for sharing all that you did, Marita. Thank you for that lovely resume. I'm going to keep that. That's lovely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Homebrew. Do you have a question you'd like to ask our homebrew authors? Send us your question and you could win a 200 Rand exclusive books voucher if yours gets chosen. WhatsApp a voice note to 079-664-0465. That's 079-664-0465. Or email social media at exclusivebooks.co.za. To find out who our upcoming authors are, just follow Exclusive Books on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. This homebrew podcast was produced by Jonathan Anser, Dan Dews, and Lerato Sebanda for exclusive books. 
Books available in-store and online at exclusivebooks.co.za. Homebrew, not the same old story.